really are dropping into what it looks like to be in a spirit-filled church. What does the spirit-filled church look like? And we have in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 the most explicit picture in the New Testament of the spirit-filled church. And so this morning we are both looking at kind of measuring ourselves as a church against God's word, measuring ourselves as individuals against God's word, but more than anything wanting to be instructed by God's word as to what it looks like to be a part of a spirit-filled church. I can't read that for sure. Let's see, what does it say? Truth Quest. Thank you for that. If you're here in Truth Quest, you can be dismissed for the fourth through sixth grade, and I apparently need to get my eyes checked yet again. So thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. It's also good to know that Jeremy, Matt, and Kylie are here because I told him after our paddleboard adventure yesterday, if none of them were here, I was going to call them out by name. Here's where we're dropping into. Last week, we were looking specifically at verses 12 through 13. And we were looking at the concept of not being someone who depersonalizes the Holy Spirit, where we, where we just think of them as this being that's out there. We think of the Holy Spirit kind of disconnected from the third person in the Trinity. And we don't want to rob the third person in the Trinity of the power that he enables us with for a godly life. And so we looked at verses 12 through 13, specifically 13, last week. And this week, as we start in verse 12 yet again, and we go all the way through to the end of the chapter in verse 31, we're going to see this, that we are not called to be a disembodied representation of Christ to a watching world. Now you may wonder, what, what do you mean by a disembodied represent, representation of Christ to a watching world? I, I, I rarely want to use social media as an illustration, but I think social media gives us a great illustration here. Unfortunately, I think television gives us a great illustration here. I think radio can give us a great illustration here. I think op-eds and, and, and columns can give us a great representation here. And let me just tell you where I have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. When I, when I read someone who is kind of a pundit or a professor who is saying, Pastor, this is what you should say to your church this week, I have a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction like this. You don't know my church. And I don't know you. So if you want to tell me what I should say to my church this week, be a part of my church. Be a part of the church. What, it, what does it mean to be a disembodied representation of the body of Christ? It means that we're building platforms rather than the people of God. That's not what we're called to. And this is where Paul begins to develop out that theme because if we are a disembodied representation of Christ to a watching world, we rob the cross of its power to bring people together. We rob the cross of its power through this common need of a Savior that we have. All of us here this morning need a Savior. Some of us have just recognized it already. So let's look together in God's Word, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Read along with me. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because... 
Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to that part that lacked it. That there may be no division in the body. But that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member's suffering, all would suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. You know, earlier this week, uh, we had a bit of a unique situation in the house. I got home, and uh, all of the kids were gone. Uh, one was at work, one was off doing something else, and, and the first lady was out in the pool, and that's, that's already unusual enough that Stephanie would be in the pool, and yes, I called her the first lady, and yes, she hates that. Please start calling her that. Um, <laughs> I know she's in the back. I'm surprised she hasn't come out yet. The, she was in the pool, and, and she was kind of doing her, she was trying to finish the rings on her watch. And so I snuck out, and I did a cannonball and surprised her. And, and then after we got out of the pool, I just had this nostalgic moment. And, and maybe you, you'll understand what I mean by that is you have that, like, nostalgic moment of getting out of the pool. Your, your son has been kind of, your skin has been kind of kissed by the sun for half an hour or so. You're getting out of the pool. You have that coolness on your skin, even in the midst of the hot summer, and it's nap time. All of a sudden, you're five years old again, right? You have that nostalgic moment. I just, I had that moment where I, it's like in Ratatouille when he gets transported back, and all of a sudden, he's sitting at his mom's kitchen table. You have these nostalgic moments, and, and all throughout studying this passage the last few weeks, I've had this nostalgic moment of thinking of the game Operation. Cavity Sam, my, my childhood friend, trying to figure out, I mean, who, who can forget playing that game, right? It's the first kind of game that you might play. you got the Adam's apple, the spare rib. And you're trying to get those tweezers in there and not make his nose light up. Playing the game Operation, you got the broken heart, the wrenched ankle. It's where I first learned the phrase, butterf- butterflies in your stomach. The Charlie horse, a rider's cramp. I mean, it's obviously formative years in healthcare development, <laughs> which is why I'm a pastor. I thought about the game Operation and how there's these pieces parts that come together to make that game a whole. And it's obviously kind of picking at uh, different aspects of the body. 
But I think it's actually a helpful illustration for us today to think about. Yes, the game by Milton Bradley, Operation. See, too many in the church try to take time to nitpick and say, we don't need this, we don't need that. We're only going to be a church of the strong. We're only going to be a church where everybody has their act together. Good luck with that. I've met the leader of the church. He doesn't have his act together. He needs a savior. I've met the leadership team. We need a savior. We need one another. And too many in the church try to, to, to make all of the pieces parts look the same and fit them into these places that Paul, and more than that, God never intended for the body of Christ as a representation of him on the earth today. And so the game operation does give us a little bit of a, a metric of how to think about today's passage. But it's not a game at all, is it? Paul's not playing games with the church. It's actually pretty serious surgery. But before he does surgery, he wants to diagnose what is the problem that's going on in the church in Corinth. What is the problem that's going on that I would properly diagnose so that we apply the right cure? And he begins to spell those problems out, the things that are causing disunity in the church. And he says, first and foremost, in verses 14 through 20, he says, there are those among you who are undervaluing your gifts. Undervaluing those gifts. Maybe, maybe it could be described this way. They're the people that would be gathered together and they have a sense that they are useless or ineffective. Useless or ineffective. It could even be something as simple as, you know, the time for me to use my gifts have, have passed. Those days are gone. Energy is wasted on the young. I have wisdom now, and I know that they don't need me. And Paul says that is just simply not true. Don't undervalue your gifts, your usefulness, your effectiveness in the church. You may be looking at, at other people and saying, well, I'm not like them, so my gifts may, must not be as important. Because I'm not like them, I'm, I'm useless. Because I'm not like those other people, I'm not of any benefit to anyone. Paul begins to recommend some things as he's diagnosing the church. He kind of challenges us head on. He gets into these beliefs to just say, no. It's not okay for you to be convinced that you are useless in the body of Christ, that you have no function in the body of Christ and in the church. Actually, if we look at verse 17 in 1 Corinthians 12, it says this, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? He's, he's acknowledging that these gifts given to the church, the individuals given to the church, the things that they bring in in terms of their strengths and their weaknesses given to the church by Christ himself are very intentional to build up the body of Christ. They're very intentional. So you might, you might wonder, like, well, maybe it's got to do with an area of ministry or gifts or service. It's not that important. You might just think, well, I'm, all I am is a Connect Team member. I'm just an usher. They, they don't need me there today. I, I'm just a bass player. They don't need me there today. I, you know, it's Truth Quest. It's children's ministry. It's babysitting. No, no, no. You are vital to the church. And can, can I just be clear here? It's not about what you do for the church. All of those ministries could go away and you would still be vital to the church. Because it's not about what you do for the church. It's about who you are in Jesus Christ. And if we ever get away from that, 
That's when you can tell me, Pastor, I have something to say to the church. If we ever get away from that message of it's about what you do for the church more than who you are before Jesus Christ. Because that would be wrong. See, sometimes it is about the service that you're doing, but more often than that, it's about the people that you're going to be able to interact with. It's not about what we need from you. It's about what that one interaction, that off interaction you're going to have backstage or in the hallway in TruthQuest or that moment you can encourage a parent that you may just think of as a throwaway moment, but for that parent it has been the breath of life that God has, has breathed into them for that week. See, you never know what you're missing if you're not here. Now, I know I'm preaching somewhat to the choir today because you are gathered here. And if you're listening to this online, it could have been because you were serving here this morning. And that's fine. But if we ever start to diminish the role that we have in the church to just be the living, breathing, functioning, reaching, stepping out toward others, initiating body of Christ, man, have we lost something. Man, have we lost something foundational to our faith. So the first response that he kind of brings is, the, is a head-on challenge to the beliefs of those who think that they are useless and have no beneficial function in the church. The second thing that he di- kind of diagnoses here is that you think that, you know, God chose the congregation, so he really doesn't need me. Like He's put all the pieces in place. Everything's in place that needs to be there already. You may be looking at the, at the church and just thinking, I wonder if, if God's wisdom didn't include me. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. The wisdom of God includes you. The wisdom of God includes his goodness by adding you to the church. Verse 18 says, but as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. And so he wants to kind of combat the thinking of, well, maybe he chose wrongly when he chose me. No. No, don't do that to yourself. Don't deny the cross of Jesus Christ in that way. No, he chose you for a purpose and a part. Let's think of it this way. If a part of your body just all of a sudden declares independence, what's going to happen? What's going to die? If all of a sudden my pinky just decided to jump, first of all, that'd be weird, right? But if it just jumped off my hand, what's, what's the instant thing that's going to begin to happen with that? It's going to begin to die off because it is not connected to what gives it life. It's not part of its purpose. It's not fulfilling the role that it was designed for. And you know, there may be those parts of our bodies that we think of as, as weak and, and less honorable. You, you know, Paul seems to be kind of indicating here, maybe like internal organs. They, they didn't quite have the medical technology that we do in those days, and so there wouldn't have been the full breadth of understanding. But like, there are aspects of my body that I'm well aware of when they're injured. My pinky toe, I ran it into the, the, into the wheel on our coffee table last night, became aware of a weak part of my body. It was delightful. But you know, those parts of our body don't have to scream for help to still be necessary. They don't have to scream for help to be necessary. It's not the squeaky wheel gets the oil kind of a thing. It's the body being together and functioning. And I wonder if, if this is just a, a part of the application here. It's not in my notes. That's fine. Uh, there are times 
that the weaker parts of my body slow me down rightly. Uh, Shane and I were talking about this in the office a couple weeks ago, and, and the conversation just stuck with me. To keep in step with the Spirit. To keep in step with the Spirit. And we were, we were talking about that phrase. And it's just kind of been one of those ones that just keeps going over and over in my head. And, and we were talking about it from two ways, right? For some people, that means you speed up to keep in step with the Spirit. For other people, what does that mean? You may need to slow down. You may need to slow down to keep in step with the Spirit. It's a great turn of phrase in, in Galatians. It's one of those ones that just challenges us even devotionally. But you know what it looks like to keep in step with the Spirit being a part of the body of Christ? It means for some people you're going to speed up. It means for other people you're going to slow down. Why is that? Because there are weaker parts of the body that we have to take into consideration. And that's good. That's a part of God's design and His plan. It's a part of how He's made us to function. I think of it this way. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I had this very unique circumstance that happened. I rubbed my eye at the end of a service. It was right at the beginning of a church picnic that we were having. I rubbed my eye, and all of a sudden, my eye just had like this allergic reaction to something. I have no idea what had happened. Somebody poisoned the pulpit. I have no idea what had happened. It was the weirdest thing. I told Stephanie, I was like, what is happening here? And all of a sudden, I became very aware of all of like my eyelid and my tear duct, and all these things became very important to me because I don't think about my eyelid and my tear duct all the time. Oh, but that day, they were front and center, right behind my sunglasses, so I didn't freak people out, right? Because it was one of those moments where it became very important. Never diminish the role and the purpose that God has called you into this fellowship for. How about we think about it this way? The illustration I came across, I thought this was a great way to, to illustrate this point before we move on. A sea captain and his chief engineer were arguing as to which one of them was the most important person on the ship. And when they didn't agree, they kind of came to this unique plan. They say, all right, for, for a period of time, we're just going to swap places and see which one of us is most important. So the chief went to the bridge and the captain went down into the engine room. And after a couple of hours, the captain came up on the deck and he's covered with soot and he's covered with oil. And, he's, and chief, he yells. Chief, I, you have to come down here. I can't make her go forward anymore. And the chief said, of course you can't. I've run her aground. <laughs> I believe the way we'd say that today is stay in your lane. It's okay to be here for the purpose that you're called here for. It's okay to not try to be what you're not. We're not asking that of you. We want to be here to equip and to train and to help all those things, but if we had a church full of leaders, that'd be a difficult church to lead. But we need one another in these different roles. So the first part of this diagnosis that Paul gives to the church in Corinth is that there are those who undervalue their gifts, and then he flips to the next group, and that's those who overvalue their gifts. It's the church that says, everybody should look like me. Thank you for not looking like me. Thank you for not being like me. I see this in my own family, that the need for, for mirrors to be there, yes. But more than that, for there, there to be people who think differently than I do. Why? So that, that I might be changed to the image of Jesus. I need that in my life. You need that in your life. See, the, the different disease that was infecting the church in Corinth were those that thought, 
I don't need you. I can do that on my own. And that's actually the problem that Paul turns his attention to in verses 21 through 26. In Paul's language, we can can begin to unpack and, and kind of look at it and say, they seem to be less important. That's the appearance when you first look at them. You, you may wonder, like, out in the open, they're not really playing any function. But the body can't survive without them. You know, some might use an illustration here like a liver. I don't know if you've ever seen a liver. It's not the thing that most people, like, there's not a liver emoji. And there's a reason, because it's kind of gross. But we all need our liver. It's the thing that's, like, vital to our bodily functions, I'm not trying to be gross or anything like that. I'm just saying it can seem less important until you realize what it does. It serves a vital role. But when people begin to look at those parts of the church and say, I don't need you, Paul says, that is also a problem. Not only is that going to cause disunity, which is kind of the broad, one of the two broad themes in the book of Corinthians, it's going to cause a spiritual death by cutting you off from vital parts of the body of Jesus Christ. Actually, there are less honorable or unpresentable body parts that that actually may just be a a veiled reference to sexual organs here, but they're treated with greater honor in that they are clothed or adorned for modesty's sake. Can I just say this? I don't think this is a place where it's appropriate to have a modesty conversation. This isn't the modest is hottest place. Actually, let me just say that. If you ever hear me say that, it's a joke. Okay? Because this passage is not about your clothing, but I do believe it's about covering. Let me explain what I mean by that. This, this passage is not about clothing, so this is not a modesty conversation in terms of like, how much skin is too much skin? I really, we're not going to go there. But it is about covering. If there are weaker parts of the body, there are also parts of the body that need to be covered because they're vulnerable. And let's not ignore a very clear biblical principle, this should be a safe space for them. The church should be a place where they can come in and they receive an appropriate covering that they can recover, that they can be vulnerable, that they can recover, that they can come to a place of greater health in their spiritual walk, maybe even because of things that they've gone through. So while I don't think that this is a place for us to have a conversation about clothing, I do think it's a place for us to have a conversation about covering appropriately those who are vulnerable in the church. We treat them with extraordinary care, if care at all, if they entrust us to care for them. See, God's aim is this, that there be no division in the church based on who has what gift. All right, let me just say it again. There's no division in the church based on who has what what gift. We don't sit in pockets based on the gifts, right? Let me talk to the teachers over here. Let me talk to the charismatics over here. It's not how it goes. Right, my compassion people in the back? No, see, that's not how it works, right? Thank God, that'd be weird. I'm sorry, I have pictures going through my head, and I'm just going to keep going here. See, we, we need to come to a place of accepting who we are in God's purpose. And this is why I think it's important for us to recognize the, the health benefits of other parts of the body of Christ. People who don't think and act like us. 
We're grateful for that. We, we should be anyway, because what does that do? It brings us to a place of accepting and understanding and actually walking in the fullness of what it is that God has called us to. See, we have to resolve that the gifts that God has given us is good because it's from Him. That needs to be something that's resolved in our own hearts and minds, or we're going to be tempted to just kind of spin our wheels spending this immense amount of time wanting to change something that's actually part of God's divine purpose. And you realize what is beginning to be exposed here in these diagnoses that, that Paul is working through of those who undervalue the gifts or those who overvalue their gifts is a subtle form of pride. See, he's addressing people who both say, they don't need me, and others who say, I don't need them. But he switches. He switches his language. The first few verses he says, if the foot should say, I am not this, therefore I don't belong. In verse 21 he turns around and says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. So he's diagnosing both groups. Why? Because in the body of Christ, all of you are needed. All of you are needed. He's not talking to the church universal. He's not talking just to individuals. He's talking this morning to Metro Life Church. Several centuries ago, a nobleman wondered what legacy he would leave to his town. And he decided to build them a church. And no one saw any of the plans for the church until it was finished. And, and when the people gathered, they, they walked in and they said, This is marvelous. This is something of beauty. And then someone asked, but where are all the lamps? Where are all the lamps at? How, how will the church be lighted? What, what will bring light? And so the nobleman began to just point out brackets in the wall all the way around the church. Brackets that were built into the wall. And he said to the people as they gathered, Each time that you are here, bring a lamp with you. And each time that you're here, where it is that you are will be lighted. But each time that you are not here, that area will be dark. It's to remind you that whenever you fail to come to church, some part of God's house will be dark. This gathering is no different than that nobleman's church this morning. Each time we make a conscious decision not to be here, not to gather together in that ministry, not to gather together in that community group, not to gather together in that one-on-one -on -one discipleship meeting when we kind of tap out as tired, but we call it sick. We tap out as overwhelmed because we've let our calendars get overrun with maybe things that aren't healthy. A part of the house of God goes dark. May it not be. May it not be here. See, when we begin to tolerate or cultivate this concept that, that I'm not needed or they're not needed, that's what's going to turn the congregation into spectators rather than participants. Those who are here to view something rather than to be active in something. And the church becomes dependent on everything that is fed to them. Can I just appeal to you, church, don't become that church. If this can be the last thing that I have to hand feed to you, don't be that church. I don't want a church where we're just sitting around and watching for how successful the leaders can be. 
I want a church that's active and participating in what God has called her to be. So here's some questions that maybe can be diagnostic questions for your own heart this morning. How does this passage focus or change maybe your view of spiritual gifts and their use? What, what gifts has God given you to benefit others? Which, which fellow believers are you tempted to look down on? What would it look like for you to have concern for them instead and covering for them? Are you isolated or insulated in the body of Christ? Not in the past. I'm asking this question about today. Not in the past. What part of the body are you functioning as today? In this last month, did you express gratitude to a number, another member of the body for what that person means to you? It, would the sign, no help wanted, fit around your neck very nicely? If someone asks you, how, how can I help you this week, would you be embarrassed or offended to have to answer them? I mean... It, it begins to kind of mess with us, doesn't it? Scripture confronts every aspect of who we are. I think about it this way, too. This has been a helpful framework for me to begin to think with, think through. Gifts and, and the mixture of gifts that God has given to the church, individuals who have gifts given by the Holy Spirit, which is true based on everything that we've studied up to this point, that it is God who gives gifts, that every believer has gifts. And some of them have a variety of gifts mixed together, what does that begin to do? It begins to give us a new framework to think through our relationship with that individual. Because each one of those strengths comes with its each one of those gifts comes with its own strengths and weaknesses. So when I'm talking with another individual and I'm talking to them, I, I, I might begin to hear, oh, I hear their gifts. I hear that gift of compassion. I hear that, that gift of teaching coming out. I, I hear that gift of prophecy. Oh, that's wonderful. You're sitting in counseling with someone and you just realize, wow. I just observed the gift of prophecy at work in a counseling session. I, I never expected to see that. Maybe you're sitting in a community group and someone shares something, you just go, I've never read the Bible that way. Those are gifts to the church. And they come with their strengths and weaknesses. And so for us in our relationships, it begins to infuse our relationships with wisdom from on high. That we're not just thinking about Enneagram and Myers-Briggs and all these kinds of things, but we actually have something that is on a far another level of spiritual gifts to think through for our brothers and sisters. And we can begin to benefit from that, and we can see them in a new way as ones that Christ has redeemed and bestowed these gifts on so that they would live for His glory. And He would be glorified through their lives. All of these things are kind of filtered then through these, these levels of maturity and maybe the time that they have been a, a believer. Perhaps you've been a believer for, for umpteen decades. And all of a sudden, someone is new to the faith, and you just think, that's cute. No, you know what that is? That's zeal. Do you remember those days? Because that can be a gift to you as well. The zeal of those who are walking through things. See, we may have different gifts. We may have different mix of gifts. We may have different experiences or personalities or maturity, but we have the same need for a Savior. We have the same need for a Savior. And we can be unified, and we can walk in purity in our mission. So what's the cure? What's the cure that Paul gives in the midst of this diagnosis? Because it seems like it's going to have to be different cures. No, it's the same cure. It's the same cure. It's Christ himself. 
See, we get to the very heart of it when we look at verse 27, and it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and individually you are members of it. You are the, member, you are the body of Christ, individually members of it. And you remember that in the midst of using this illustration of the body, he explains, so it is with Christ, that you are in Christ. You are united with Christ. These are very deep theological terms. And so the illustration of the body leads us to the application of Jesus Christ. The illustration of the body leads us to the application of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Each one of you are a part of it. And it begins to remind us of passages like 1 Peter 2, 9, where it says you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Received mercy. You know, oftentimes we talk about mercy and grace. And oftentimes we kind of just assume on their their explanation. But when he says that we have received mercy, what does it mean? We all deserved punishment for our sin. We all stand guilty before a holy God. We We have the same need for a Savior. Some of us have received that mercy, which very simply means this. We deserved punishment, but we received blessing instead. We received mercy. Grace is an undeserved favor, and mercy is what's poured out on those who deserve punishment and yet don't receive it. Why? Why could that happen? Because Jesus Christ received it for us. And here is the solution. Here is the cure that Paul gives to the church. Not playing games like Cavity Sam, looking at your life and looking at my life and saying, here is what is going to be everything. The fulfillment of everything that you need is Jesus Christ. Peter's writing about a radical change that happens in people's lives as we are brought in to be God's own. When he talks about us being this royal priesthood, this chosen people, holy nation, belonging to God, With a purpose. What is that purpose? To declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into light. See, we're saved as individuals. But the Christian life doesn't stay that way. We come to Christ individually, but we don't live in Christ solitarily. We come to Christ individually, but we don't live in Christ solitarily. We are saved as individuals but we are called into the body of Christ. We're placed into this body, called into himself. So whatever appointment or assignment you receive from God, you need to know this morning that you are a vital part of the body of Christ. Paul concludes in these closing verses, making the point that no one spiritual gift is intended for every Christian. He doesn't want everybody in the church to look exactly alike. As a matter of fact, in in the original language, he's kind of asking this, this obvious question. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. And that's that's what he's trying to say. We're not all called to look alike, but God has appointed some to be in those roles. He's more concerned about the foundation that we're building our lives upon than the platform that we're ministering out of. 
He's more concerned about the, the foundation we build on than the platform of our performance in any way, shape, or form. That's what Paul's main concern is. He's, he's right, rooting out a pride that can lead to division in the church. They don't need me or they all need to be like me. Both of them can be pride. Now, you may think, like, hang on, Chris. I was tracking with you until you said that last part. All right, just play, play it out with me for just a second. It's kind of obvious on that they don't need me, right? Kind of obvious on they don't need me. Well, that just sounds arrogant. You might say, like, that's a redeemed jerk, right? That's, that sounds arrogant. That sounds prideful. But they don't need me doesn't really sound like pride. All right, well, let's think through that just a little bit then. Let's make sure that we understand this rightly. If we think of our gifts as irrelevant or unimportant, that, that I have nothing to offer, it may sound humble on the surface. But I think it's actually a very deadly expression of pride. Because it's so seemingly humble. See, it's almost like what we see in, in Romans chapter 9 where the clay says to the potter, why did you make me like this? See, it's a form of inferiority disguised as pride. Where we are actually putting out a damning accusation against God himself. And so that's why I say this is the same issue of pride. But, but why does it matter? Why does it matter? See, Christ's own physical body, which he put on humbly through the incarnation, was given up to die humbly for you and me. And the Holy Spirit, which Jesus baptizes us in, bestows gifts that we are not called to over or undervalue. Now, you, you may think that the response that I'm going to lead us through here as a local church is, is unique. But I think that this has a very clear application on the priority of the local church. Why should I join a church is a question that I'm asked pretty often. What is so important about joining a local church. Why does it matter so much? Well, the New Testament makes it clear that every Christian is called to join together with other Christians in the membership of local congregations. The New Testament letters were not written to the universal body of Christ. That's everybody who calls on the name of the Lord. The, the New Testament letters were written to individual churches, to the Christians in Galatia to the Christians in Thessalonica and, and Ephesus and so on. And, and so most of the New Testament letters were written in such a way to encourage believers to excel in building up the local church. So that's why you'll hear me at times use the language of Paul's not just writing to Christians and believers, he's writing you and me, to, you and me today in Metro Life Church because we are a local expression of the body of Christ. But see, the, the pictures, the, the illustrations, the metaphors, the analogies that are used throughout Scripture only begin to make sense. They only can become real when we understand that we are called to meet together in church fellowship. So, for example, flock, household, building, body, those are all things used throughout Scripture. But one sheep doesn't make a flock. One brick doesn't make a house. One individual doesn't make a family. One limb doesn't make a body. You're kind of starting to see how the picture works? See, these only make sense together. They only make sense together. And the togetherness that God intends is within the framework of a local fellowship of God's people, this vital, close relationship with one another. And God has arranged things so that we need each other. 
This is why I can say very simply, like, if there are people that are in wonderful positions, smart people, but they want to tell me what to say to the church, that's an easy knee-jerk reaction for me. That's an easy knee-jerk reaction for me. We begin to also see that the church is a, is a special provision made by the Lord Jesus for fellowship, discipline, worship, instruction, and service. It's the local church where we get to discover what fellowship in the house of the Lord looks like. That we get to experience fellowship with those that we might not normally gather with, young and old. No matter what season of life that they're in, no matter what socioeconomic place that they're in, no matter how bright or dumb, no matter how fat or thin they may be, all types of people. Where's the only place that that can take place in the local church? That happens in the local church. See, other things may be supplemental, but the church is foundational. And we need to make sure that we have a clear understanding of that. And, and here, can I just maybe give a potential category for us to respond, or to, for us to think through? What are the friend groups that exist within Metro Life Church? Now, I can name a couple. I don't think that's helpful to do this morning. I'm not calling anybody out, but I am going to ask a couple of questions. Is the friend group that you have always in agreement with one another? And so it's more like an affinity group than it is fellowship. In other words, y'all stopped growing a long time ago. You're a clique. You've become a clique. Everybody loves to accuse the youth ministry of having cliques, and nobody recognizes it within the greater body of Christ. You might be a clique. You might be at a place where your growth stopped a long time ago, but everybody kind of tolerates everybody else, and so we just have this supper club, and we call that fellowship. I don't think that's what God intended. Now, I'm not saying that every time you get together, it's supposed to be some, like there's confession and repentance. Right before we had dessert, it was beautiful. Like, God be praised if that happens. That's not what I'm asking for. What I'm asking about is, are the people that are around you helping you to look more like Jesus Christ? And if not, break out of that bubble. Please, for the good and the health of the church, break that bubble apart. If it's just people that we like getting together because we agree all the time, break out of that bubble. What about discipline? That's fun. Actually, I think what I mean more here is discipleship. See, discipleship, discipline, that, that's got ha- to happen within a place that other believers who are seeking to live this disciplined life, who are baptized by the Holy Spirit, who see a need for not only ourselves as individuals, but our entire family to be exposed to these things. I think about it this way. My, my children receive their primary discipleship from me as a parent. Well, if that analogy makes sense in the world, where would Jesus go for his kids to get disciplined? The family of the local church. And I understand there's a bit of a rejection of the use of the analogy of family in, in the local church, but I think it's actually biblical. So let's not throw, like there may be some unhealthy ways that that's been expressed throughout the years. Fine. Let's get back to the healthy ways that we can see that. 
Sometimes it's discipline to sit next to some of the people around you. Maybe even right now, and if somebody near you chuckled, you might be the reason why. It can be a discipline to sit around the people that you do on Sundays. It can be a discipline to respond when there's an exhortation in the middle of a community group, and you just think, oh, there goes so-and-so, droning on again about their great spiritual life. It got quiet. Did that get too real? I'm going to keep going. It can be a discipline to do those things because none of us is perfect and all of us make mistakes. We all need help. We all need correction. We mostly need it from people who are more mature than us, but there are times that we receive it from those who are less mature, and that can be super embarrassing. And what's happening in that moment? Our hearts are being disciplined. We're being discipled in those moments. And so maybe there's a category for response in the church today that if you're not a part of a community group, well, maybe that's a wonderful smaller environment to get involved in in a community group to, to grow in this area. What about worship? Where, where, does, where does worship take place? Well, worship can take place anywhere at any time, that's for sure, but God does desire the corporate worship of his people in the local church. He's made it possible for Christians to unite in prayer and to unite in praise in the context of being together. And so maybe a category for response to this would be to prioritize Sunday mornings and, and not just coming for the 10 a.m. service. Thank you for being here but actually being here early to interact with other believers. Maybe even staying later and talking to people. Like asking Zach Nolette, was today just sun's out, guns out day that you've decided to play the drums with a tank top on while looking like Ted Lasso with that mustache? You know, sometimes people need that. (laughs) I love Zach. Sometimes people need that. What about instruction? Sorry, let me just come back to prioritize Sunday mornings. Maybe, maybe it's just being here early to be a part of the, the 9.30 prayer time that happens as well. Not just the 10 a.m., but being here for the 9.30 prayer as well. What about instruction? You may think, well, I'm here. You're preaching. I'm listening still. Is that not enough? Well, no, I mean, there are ways that God has called us to be instructed. And it can be through the sermon. It can be through the radio and podcasts. But I don't think that God ever intended for an electronic church to take the place of the body of Christ. Maybe a grow group would be a good place for you. We're going to see those coming out in about a month for getting ready for the fall term. Maybe, maybe look at a grow group to be a part of. What are ways that I can continue to grow and receive instruction within the context of a local church? Where are God's people called to serve? Well, it's not exclusively here, but certainly here to serve in the local church. See, other, other places may benefit from your gifts, but those gifts were designed to build up the body of Christ. That, that's a first and foremost importance on God's mind. Yes, it's to go out and to serve others. Yes, it's to go out and to be to the benefit of others. But it's not exclusively there. So let me ask you a question. Are you using gifts that God's given you exclusively at work and then you're just thinking, listen, I'm off the clock and so serving is not really my thing now. I, uh, hang on. I got some thoughts for that. Wrong. According to God's word, that's a wrong way of thinking. That's the extent of my thoughts. See, I, I would hate to see that others would benefit from your gifts more than local church. 
I'm going to have the band come out. And as they're coming out, I just want to say, I think that there's something exciting that we have for next week because Paul kind of, he's writing this as one letter. For us, this is a bit of a tease for next Sunday. At the end of verse 31, in the midst of saying, earnestly desire the higher gifts, he's, he's giving us all an instruction to be engaged in the way that we are responding to these types of messages. But more than that, he's saying, and I will show you a more excellent way. And that's what we're going to see in the way of love next Sunday. But even as we begin to close, I just want to let you know, uh, this is a resource that we as a church were given for free. And we want to pass that along to you as well. It's a book called uh, Rediscover Church. It was put together by Nine Marks and the Gospel Coalition. Crossway published it. Uh, I'm a huge fan of, of most of the stuff that Crossway publishes. It was written by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman. Um, I've just found this to be a helpful kind of refresher uh, of a book. It's called Rediscover Church. There are a limited number of copies. If it's, if it's something that you would like, it's yours today for free. We're, we're going to pass on the costs to you free. And uh, I just want you to have a copy of this. I think Al has them at the back or they have them at the back somewhere uh, just so that there's not any confusion. I made sure Lisa gave them to Al who is one of our head ushers. As the band just begins to play, I just want to ask the question of this. I just want to ask us just to take a moment to respond in our own hearts first and foremost today. Perhaps you're here today and and, and the thought of, of responding to God has been something that's been, it's a concept you've heard about where I, when I use a phrase like scripture confronts the way that we were living our lives and it calls us to something else. It calls us to, to live in a way that looks different than the world. See, when we don't respond to that call, when we run from God, when we rebel against his way, scripture very clearly calls that sin. When we cross paths with what God has intended for his good design, we call that transgression and sin. And all of that is an affront to the holiness of God. It's something that actually stands counter to his character. But he loves you and he wants to save you from that sin. He wants to offer you a new life of hope. And in order to give you this gift of salvation, He made a way through Jesus Christ, His Son. So we don't want to cheapen the gifts. We don't want this to be something that we don't want this to be something that we look at and just say it doesn't really matter if I'm engaged in the gifts. No, Jesus gave His life that we might receive these gifts. So we don't discount them either. But we start with the gift of salvation. See, we can't operate in the gifts of the Spirit we haven't been baptized into Jesus Christ himself and recognizing our need for a savior first and foremost he is the one who makes a way we receive this gift of salvation by faith alone see faith is a decision that you're going to make in your heart but it's going to be demonstrated by the actions of your life and this morning just as, as we begin to close our eyes bow our heads just for a moment of reflection. If you're here today and, and you say, I want to put my trust in Jesus Christ. I, I, want to, I want to put my trust in Him. I want to receive this gift of salvation by faith alone. I want the actions of my life to demonstrate the change that Jesus Christ is bringing to my heart and the renewal that He is bringing to my mind. Would you just very simply pray this prayer to yourself right now? Dear God, I know that I am a sinner. 
I believe Jesus died to forgive me of my sins. I, I now accept your offer of eternal life. And I thank you for forgiving me of all of my sin. I thank you for the gift of new life. And from this day forward, I choose to follow after you. Perhaps you're here this morning and, and you just think, I, I'm recognizing myself in one of these two categories. Either I'm looking at these gifts and I'm saying, I don't need you to other people. And I never would have thought of it as an expression of pride. I never would have thought of it as something where I was, I was denying something that was a part of God's good design and God's good plan. To say that I don't need you. I just thought that I, was, I didn't want to be a burden to other people and I'm realizing now I've actually been sinning in the way that I've been living, thinking that way. Perhaps you're here this morning, you think, I, I never realized that undervaluing the gifts that God has given and thinking of myself as someone who is very dispensable within the body of Christ, I didn't realize what an affront that was, not only to the cross of Jesus Christ, but to the Holy Spirit who empowers us each day. You may say, I've never thought of it in those types of categories, and yet I see it in my own life. It's something that I'm recognizing, that's how I think. It's very simple today. You too can pray a prayer of repentance. It very simply means this, that we are turning from one way of thinking or acting to another. Perhaps that's what's happening with you today, and I would just invite you to pray this prayer with me this morning. Merciful God, we confess sinned against you in thought or word or the way that I have acted. Or what I've done, maybe what I've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we've been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what it is that we shall be so that we can delight in your will, so that we can walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Church can respond now just by simply standing and singing together.